ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In the 1840s, a Royal Navy ship called HMS Rattlesnake entered the waters of far north Queensland on a mission to survey the coasts of northern Australia and New Guinea. On board the Rattlesnake was a man named Thomas Huxley. Huxley was officially the assistant surgeon, but he was, in practice, a kind of marine biologist. Thomas Huxley was in his 20s, and he'd pulled himself up from an anxious childhood. He had a brilliant mind and enormous energy. He was to marry a woman he met in colonial Sydney, then returned to England, and then found one of the great intellectual and scientific dynasties of that age. Thomas Huxley became a trailblazing scientist and the great popularizer of Darwin's theory of evolution. And his grandsons would become equally famous in their own time. Aldous Huxley would become the author of Brave New World and the Doors of Perception. Andrew Huxley would be awarded a Nobel Prize. And Julian Huxley, he became one of the most brilliant scientists of his time. He was also a poet, the director of London Zoo, the founding president of UNESCO. The story of the Huxley dynasty has been told in this very rich book by historian Alison Bashford. Alison's woven together the stories of the two great biologists, Thomas, the dynasty's founder, and the grandson Julian. Because the questions that preoccupied these two men were often the same. Where do humans fit into the much bigger picture of life on Earth? Are humans unique and special, or are we simply very brainy primates? And what meaning, if anything, can we extract from this new scientific story of creation? Alison Bashford's book is called An Intimate History of Evolution, The Story of the Huxley Family. Hello, Alison. Hello, lovely to be here. Thomas and Julian. You say that if you put their lives together, you have a one great big extraordinary life that sort of begins in 1825 and ends in 1975. What kind of great transformation does that one singular life, if you see those lives as one big life together, encapsulate? Yes, that's really one of the great draws for me to the Huxleys in the first place. And I started to think of them as one very long-lived man. I was looking to write a book about the great changes over the 19th and 20th century from the age of sail in the 1830s, 40s, 50s to the space age, an age of colonial wars and colonial expansion to the Cold War, you know, through completely different media from just a print-based world to a world of radio and television and film. And I like writing histories of something specific that is connected to really big things. And the Huxley's kind of settled as, as, as the people I could write this book through. One of the biggest shocks that came to the world in that time frame was the shift in how we saw ourselves in the universe as human beings. Over the period of that one big life, the world became much, much, much older, much, 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 much bigger, much colder and a lot emptier as well. How important are these two men in that shift from seeing the world as a kind of a created world by God to this natural world without a supernatural story behind it? That's really, really well put. It, it is a world, well, in this part of the world anyway, where the universe, the world and humankind's place in it does shift from a God-created, God-meaning world to one in which the world is natural and it's a massive, massive shift. And the Huxleys ended up being a good vehicle to think that through because there are many, many different scientists obviously pushing this forward, even if we think beyond Darwin. But one of the interesting things about these, this Huxley dynasty is they did some science, definitely, but they were even better at being what we now call science communicators. So over many generations, this particular family wanted to tell and sell and explain the idea of evolution by natural selection. And that's why at one point I picked up a book by Julian and he says, oh, humankind or mankind, he would say, are the trustees of evolution. We're the only species who can understand what evolution is, even though we're all part of it. And so therefore we're special 
And that makes us, as humankind, he would say, unique and we are the trustees of evolution. So, so we're not important. Humans aren't important because God has appointed humans as the captains of life planet on Earth, Earth yeah. planet on Earth. We're important because we can understand the process by which we became so predominant. That's an indicator, Julian Huxley would always say. And it, But he would always say it's only by happenstance of evolution that this happened. You know, there happened to be an opposable thumb one day, many, many millions of years ago. Humans stood on two legs and that that use of the hand made us more intelligent. So it's, a, it's an evolutionary explanation of what used to be a God-based explanation. Let's start at the founding of this dynasty, founded by Thomas, who I mentioned right at the start there. He was born in England in 1825, and you write that he willed himself into becoming the patriarch. Just how how hard did he have to fight to get himself out of the miserable, impoverished circumstances of his birth, Alison? It's the mystery of how some people have that will. Out of all the many, many children and siblings, he's the one, the youngest who had this internal drive to lift himself out of not poverty, but definitely a declining family. They were literate. The father was a school teacher. You know, they had to move away from London to Coventry. The family was in decline. So they're falling out of the lower middle class. They're, they're absolutely falling out and, of the lower middle with, class. With all of that kind of dread and humiliation that comes with that? All of that. Where can we afford to live? We've got to move again. And there's some kind of classic Victorian drive there that picks up some of them and makes them absolutely determined. And so Thomas Henry Huxley, as a 13-year-old, can you imagine, is sent off to be a medical apprentice at 13. What is that, a trainee doctor or something? That's a trainee doctor. That's how probably how most people became a doctor in the 1830s. But he, he was miserable. And then he, he picks up another apprenticeship in the Docklands in the east end of, of London and he's miserable. He hates it. He gets sick at dissections. You know, he's kind of dispensing by day but by night... He's lighting his candle in his very humble upstairs, upstairs, upstairs room and he's learning his German, he's learning his ancient Greek, he's studying his philosophy, he's studying his natural history and he is absolutely determined to become somebody else than an East End doctor. So then in 1846, he goes off with the Royal Navy aboard HMS Rattlesnake. And his role is to be assistant surgeon, but also a kind of a biologist. What was what was his role going to be, though, once he got out into the South Seas on the rattlesnake? Well, he's definitely there as an assistant surgeon. And so that's what he would be expected to do. The work of surgery, the work of a doctor. Right, giving them oranges and lopping off the occasional leg, that <laughs> kind of thing. That kind right. of thing. <laughs> but he always was also taking this journey because that's what a lot of the great naturalists did. And he already knew that this this figure that he'd never met yet, Charles Darwin, had sailed around the world, so had Humboldt, so had Wallace, you know. So in a way, those with aspirations to being what was then called natural historians, uh, biologists, knew that journeys to elsewhere could be the start. And so from the beginning, he was scooping up things out of the oceans. He loved jellyfish. That's what he got his um, fellowship in the Royal Society for. Uh, so it was marine invertebrates, which is the very unlikely um, object of inquiry that he was absolutely fascinated by. So using Sydney, as a colonial Sydney as a base, that's where he met his wife-to-be, Henrietta. How, how hard did they fall for each other, these two? Instantly. She and he always talked about... They never use the word love at first sight because they're too Victorian for that. But that's they, they would have said it in much more urbane and eloquent ways. But they absolutely fell for one another. And um, it was this long, long, very tortured engagement where it's, it's also a class story because he thought they were absolutely in love, but I don't yet have the, mon- the means, the money to support you, Henrietta. Uh, and I can't marry you until that is the case. So it's this long five-year tortured engagement where she stays in Sydney, he returns to London to try and pick up a job that would enable them to be married. So then he heads up to the Great Barrier Reef on this ship. And the Great Barrier Reef, that world when it's not cyclone season, is like heaven. It's just so beautiful. There's so much colour. And for marine life, good God, I mean... He's not having a good time, though, is he? He's not having a good time. So one of the things about these Huxleys is that there is a paralysing depression that runs intergenerationally. 
no question about it, and they themselves over many generations are the clearest about it. And how, how incapacitated was he by depression on this? Thomas Henry Huxley was incapacitated to the extent that all of his... He, he was an avid diary writer. That all stops. In the records, it just stops. And it's slow. you can see it slowing, slowing. So literally his capacity to say words, to write words, is slowing. And eventually we know that he's just lying in his um, hammock in his pretty miserable quarters on the HMS Rattlesnake. This vivid world, as you say, is around him, literally colourful, and he's reading Dante. He's getting no joy from the world around him. No joy at all. We also see him re-emerge from his records. He re-emerges. He was quite a you know a reasonable artist and watercolorist and we have in the state library in new south wales actually we have a, a series of his quite beautiful watercolors and they start to reappear so he's literally comes back into the color I know everyone's diagnosing everyone with all kinds of pathologies these days and doing it at that kind of a distance is a mistake, but he does seem to have a lot of the symptoms of what might now be called bipolar disorder insofar as he's he's completely flawed by his bouts of depression. But outside of that, he's pretty exuberant and is full of energy. Absolutely, and I think that does um, go fairly squarely across the generations, and I think that uh, Julian Huxley, his grandson, has even more paralysing depressions, that's for sure. Worse, I would say. They were very articulate about it, interestingly. Um, but Thomas Henry Huxley, I would say, fits that because these are high-achieving men who, when they're on, they are on. They will talk anybody down to the ground. They will argue anybody down to the ground. These are bold, energetic characters who, on occasion, and it's very, very clear from the records when, fall into such a paralysing depression that they almost slow to a halt. Meanwhile, when, when he recovers from his depression, he's writing these papers on marine invertebrates that he's picking up out of the, uh, the Coral Sea and, and the like and sending them back to England. What, what was that doing for him, the sending of those papers back to England? What kind of a name was he making for himself while he was away? So he's trying to make a name. That's exactly the point. And so he's sending it back to all of, you know, to this metropolitan centre where everybody's, you know, as we know, everybody's trying to classify everything. And there was a bit of a mystery at the time as, you know, how where do jellyfish as we know them and all those sea anemones and so forth fit in the kind of 18th century idea of a, tr- of a tree of life? This is a world where there, is, there are some emerging ideas about evolution and things mutating from one species to another, but the bigger project was to classify everything. And so, you know, in some ways the marine biologists of the world listening will be fascinated by it, but it's curious to us why somebody would be so interested in the jellyfish of the Coral Sea, but it's this classification problem that he was trying to fix. And he wrote his papers and sent them diligently back. And, you know, this was a, a world where... He sent his papers back. He didn't know that they were being read by really distinguished naturalists uh, and his name was being made back in London without him even knowing about it, actually. Right, while he's in his hammock reading Dante's Inferno and, and being miserable on, on, on board right. the, the rattlesnake. So he's making a name for himself back in, in England and after a long while he makes it back to England He's got and he gets a position at the Royal School of Mines as a lecture, lecturer and he can bring... Henrietta over from Sydney. They get married in England and have a bunch of kids and live in this rambling, lovely big house in St John's Wood. How did he take to family life? Did he enjoy becoming the paterfamilias of this brood of kids that they had? He absolutely loved being the patriarch in that in that sense of the family, but he had these also these ambitions to be patriarch of a new kind of science. But he had they had many many children. He loved his children. In, in that tragic mid-Victorian way, several of them died. He was racked with grief over their death, um, something he shared with Charles Darwin and actually shared the grief with Charles Darwin. Oh, we he have, wrote about it? He wrote about it. He and Darwin shared their feeling and sense of grief with each other, which are very interesting and intimate Letters. What does that do for that whole idea of the Victorians being very buttoned-up emotional people? It turns it entirely on its head. It turns that buttoned-up collar right around. Mm. And so I've, you know, I've been writing on the 19th century and the 20th century for a really long time now and writing this book in particular and reading those letters between 
Thomas Henry Huxley, who was big and bold and fractious and one minute and, as you know, as you, melancholy the next. But what I learned in these letters, and we have all of them, because this was an era where they seemed to do nothing except write letters to one another. So we know the intimate ideas of these men and they shared these apparently quintessential buttoned-up Victorian gentlemen shared honest emotion. They would say to one another, they would declare their love to one another in so many words. They would share grief. They would share political difference. The significance of their friendships was something that they were incredibly eloquent about and articulate about. And so writing this book especially made me think that that caricature that we have about Victorian masculinity as being contained and inauthentic or barely even there emotionally is altogether wrong. This was a world where words could be put to all kinds of emotions and shared between between men especially in a way that would that would surprise most of us, I think. It seems the death of two of their eight children hardened his convictions, if that's the right word for it, as an agnostic. In fact, he coined the word agnostic. How did he create that word? He did. So it comes out of a long scholarly tradition of Gnosticism, a kind with of a knowledge with a G. Yeah. And he puts his A against that agnostic. And so it's absolutely coined by this common term that we all now have different meanings for now, I think. But it's his invention. It's absolutely Thomas Henry Huxley's invention. Right, so being a Gnostic or someone who has the truth just revealed to them divinely, but so an agnostic is someone who needs evidence. Someone who needs evidence. And so that is the very specific understanding of it, is that there are certain matters for which we can never get evidence, he said. And so we need evidence to know, but we can never get evidence of the reality of a divine, he would say. And so he would even say it may be true, but we'll never have the evidence of it. And so, you know, as people will know, it's a completely different meaning to atheist. And there were atheist groups, there were quite a few and very vocal atheist groups actually right through the 19th century. And they all tried to take on this term agnostic. And Thomas Henry Huxley didn't like it because he wasn't atheist. He would always say, I'm too clever for that. Right. It hadn't been proven either way in his mind. That's the whole point. This is a scientist looking for evidence. (laughs) And so the the, the kind of clarity of the atheists were as as much nonsense to him as what the Archbishop of Canterbury thought. So he befriended Charles Darwin. As his profile rose, he became a friend of Charles Darwin. How different were these two men? They were so different. And and so, you know, I, I had fun writing this book thinking about pairs. And so there are married pairs. You know, there's Henrietta and Thomas Henry and Julie, Julian, his grandson, his wife. But then I started thinking about this other pair, this intellectual and scientific pair, Thomas Henry Huxley and his very close friend, Charles Darwin. And they were as opposite a pair as you'd get. And so Thomas Henry Huxley, his his huge, bold, loud, fractious personality just booms through the records. And meanwhile, Charles Darwin was meek, mild, quiet, cautious, would much rather stay home and would much rather stay in his day bed than anywhere else probably. But Charles Darwin knew he had this idea brewing for decades actually and he was so cautious and private he kept it even from his close friends and slowly, slowly over the late 1850s started to reveal it to just a few in his close circle and Thomas Henry Huxley was one. And Darwin was already beside himself with anxiety about how he was going to present this to the world and the arguments that were going to happen. This argument that humans aren't created by God, but they, they arise, like all life does, through natural selection, improving the, the various species over time. That's right. That's, and it's like he's like a man with the secret of the atom bomb in his head in some ways, isn't he? And he Darwin? knew it and he, and he, he was it. almost mm. disabled by it, actually. And along comes Thomas Henry Huxley, loud brash, up for a fight, asking for any fight possible. And Charles Darwin said, oh, you're my, you're my guy. And um, Charles Darwin stayed at home, sent Thomas Henry out to have the arguments. 
and he had them, loved them, won them. Won them. Did you, you say he started out as a sceptic of Darwin's idea, but then was persuaded, turned around and went, oh, okay, this makes sense. And thereafter, he, he was he was a self-appointed Darwin's bulldog, I think was the phrase uh, he right. used for himself. Tell me about the moment that sealed his reputation in a debate on Darwin's theory of evolution through natural selection. So it's, it's a very famous debate between... Um, Huxley and, and and a man of the cloth, and they're in the Oxford Museum, and it's seen to be this clinching moment where Huxley just bulldozes the the church's argument and the clerical argument. It, it's it's seen to be an annihilation of the clerical argument. And that's exactly what Thomas Henry Huxley wanted to do. And he loved the platform and he loved annihilating. But on all sides, these are clever, learned Victorians. They know their arguments. They know how to argue. They all know the Bible. They all know the science. It's not that the clericals, the clerics only know the Bible and not the science. And they've all learned the science as well. They all know mathematics. They all know ancient Greek. You know, this is an incredibly sometimes self-taught, as in Huxley's uh, instance, but this is a really, really learned group. And so it's not just it i think these days sometimes it can be reduced to you know just a, a a plain bipartisan argument but the nuances of it all were very very clear to both sides i wonder how much agony it caused scientists natural scientists of the time who were nonetheless christians to have to try and reconcile those two things in their head the story of creation in the bible and what was revealed by darwin's theory of natural selection Huge agony, difficult. This is what's difficult for Darwin. This is why he keeps it to himself for decades, actually, um, because he knows not just in as a public problem, but as a deep personal problem and a difficulty actually with his um, wife. You know, how is this going to land? But for Huxley in a way that I think is um, really ended up enchanting me and actually impressing me. He absolutely owns it. And so with a small group, he's trying to take on the Church of England. And we have to remember the power that the Church of England and the doctrine that goes behind it has in this era. And he and a small group of natural scientists absolutely own what they, the implications of evolution by natural selection. They don't skirt around it then. They just go, this is, this is what we all have to conclude from this. Entirely. And this is our new identity. And this is, it, it's like a new generation. And they want to take over the Royal Society, which is the really distinguished group of, uh, of scientists. And they do. And so over a generation, this group of agnostics, and some are much much clearer actually than Thomas Henry Huxley or much more adamant than he is. And they take on the Church of England, they take on the Royal Society, and it's like a young generation of anti-authoritarians who feel they have the weight on their shoulders of telling the facts of nature. Thomas produced a book of his essays called Evidence as to Man's Place in Nature, which again, was massively popular. What did he think was the place of humans in nature, Alison? So this is probably his best-known book, published in 1863, and it comes out almost a decade before Charles Darwin is in any way brave enough to talk about humans. So Charles Darwin leaves humans right out of his famous Origin of Species. Oh, he never, he didn't do that? There's a couple of paragraphs at the end, that's it. So the Origin of Species implies humans, does not talk about them. But he didn't want the fight and wouldn't go there. Wouldn't go there. But Huxley wanted the fight. Huxley thought, hang on, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll talk about humans because he loves the, he loves the fight. This is what's so impressive about it. It's unashamed. These are the implications. As a man of science, it's my responsibility to put it all on the table. Cop that so world. I, right. Cop that world. So I yeah. am going to compare, and this is not new for Huxley, actually. I am going to compare, I am going to put humans in a classification of primates and I'm going to tell the world about all of the by this time, he's absolutely moved on from jellyfish to um, much more interesting and important, so to say, vertebrates. How are humans like chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, 
monkeys and apes? How are we the same as them and how are we different to them? And this is what he sets out, and I wish this was a visual show because there's that famous, famous, much-tweaked sequence of different kinds of primates and we see it on T-shirts still. I laugh when I walk down the street and I see people, you know, it gets misunderstood as evolution over time from apes to humans. Yes, the ascent of man thing, isn't it? It's like you've got a sort of a, a little monkey right. and then a higher ape and Homo erectus and then Homo sapiens at the end of it. The thing is that actually Thomas Henry Huxley was just comparing primates in the present, you know, how are we the same as and different to a gorilla? So we are not separate entirely. We not are separate. part of the family of primates. We're just very clever primates, in other yep. words. Exactly. And we have a different thumb, we have and that's evolved we've evolved a different brain and so forth. And so we're the we're the same but different. And it, it so it's it's that unity uh, that is not a new idea in many ways. But his friend Charles Darwin had worked out this mechanism. So how this uh, evolution over time had worked, that apes, uh, say a gorilla or a chimpanzee or an orangutan and a human, have common ancestors. Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, as you say, Thomas wanted to found this great dynasty. He had a whole lot of children with Henrietta, and among them was a son, Leonard. Did Leonard grow up in his father's shadow to some extent? Thomas Henry Huxley was too big a personality for any room, any house, anywhere. I mean, he was one of those people that was big in every sense. And he was famous by this point, you know, he was really well known. All of his children had that shadow and actually his grandchildren I now know as well. And so poor Leonard, who who probably is, um, you know, the least treated in my book, but the, probably the nicest of them all, um, he wanted to do his classics and his Greek and his literature and so what he ended up doing, but he had to argue against, you know, becoming a biologist, you know, but he stuck to his guns and he became a master of classics at a very big, posh public school. He married Julia Arnold from the famous Arnold Literary family, which was sort of kind of like a marriage of art and science within the family. And she strikes me as an incredibly brilliant woman. You've got a great photo of her. Even though she's wearing one of those big Edwardian dresses, she looks like a very modern woman. She went on to found a girls' school. Was there a sense in which the Huxley men were now expected to marry brilliant women to sort of improve the gene pool, to help sort of ensure the strength of this dynasty? I don't think they were expected, but I think this is a kind of a crossover world. I mean, you know, Leonard and Julia met in Oxford. She was at Oxford at a time when women couldn't get degrees, but she was at Somerville College where she learned a lot. And so there was, in a way, it's more of a crossover. They're finding one another. So it's this lovely coalescence of learned people bringing science and literature together. And for me, I think once I started thinking about that marriage, I started to think about who are the writers and the literary people in this family. And what I realised is, oh, hang on a minute, all of these scientists are writing poems as well. Thomas Henry Huxley in his spare time, and there's not much of it, is also writing and publishing poetry. So is Julian Huxley. And of course, you know, one of, one of, his, one of uh, Lennon's other sons is Aldous Huxley. So this is a world where biologists are poets. They had five children, and among those children was Aldous Huxley, who would go on to write Brave New World and The Doors of Perception, and Julian, the brilliant son, who is the other pole of your book. What sort of a bond did little Julian make as a little boy with the patriarch Thomas Huxley? So their lives crossed over for about eight years, if I remember correctly, and there are, there are rather lovely studio portraits, and there's a beautiful one of old, ageing Thomas Henry Huxley, you know, with his mutton chops and his, he just looks grim, and on his lap he's sitting this grandson, Julian Huxley, who's about six, I think, and their hands are clasping one another. So Julian's are just laying over his grandfather's hands. It's quite sweet. Absolutely. 
and there are a kind of a connection over generations between these two who share biology, share a kind of a brilliance, but also share a melancholy, share, share this depression. Julian read that fantastical children's book, The Water Babies, as a five-year-old. What impression did it make on him? There's a beautiful letter from tiny little Julian Huxley in a little kid's hand and he's asking his uh, grandfather about the water babies. Have, have you seen them, he says to his grandfather. Have you ever seen them? And what does what grandfather and say? And grandfather writes back a really beautiful letter where he's saying to his grandson, I've never seen them, so they may exist, they <laughs> may not. Oh, how delightful. When Julian completed his studies at Oxford as a biologist. You're right that this was a period when Darwinism, of which his grandfather had been the great champion, had fallen into eclipse. Now, this is the years just before the First World War. Why had Darwinism fallen into eclipse? Well, all along with the theory of evolution by natural selection, there was this problem where Charles Darwin himself had talked about this idea of what he called and subsequently was called blended inheritance. So he had this idea that between one generation generation and another, there's a blend. But the very idea of natural selection requires lots and lots and lots of variation. So there was kind of this problem with it, which was if everything blends... How does variation continue? We now know it's because there's a mutation in the gene, but they didn't know about genes. Darwin didn't know about genes. Thomas Henry Huxley didn't know about genes. And it's only Julian Huxley's generation, about 1900, when he's learning biology, that Mendel's ideas come to the fore again. And so really on the back of evolution by natural selection, which everybody knew required thousands, thousands, millions, millions of years, is this new study of inheritance between one generation and another. And that's when that problem with Darwinism, you know, eventually gets reconciled. Right. So then he wrote in 1942, he wrote the defining work of his life, Evolution, the Modern Synthesis. So is that where he brought those two ideas together, evolution through natural selection, Darwin's idea? And then Mendel's idea of genetic inheritance. Exactly, and that, that, that they can have su- you can have sudden changes between one generation and another, or unexpected ones. But really, this is Julian Huxley as a writer and a science communicator. Did he do all the work that explained that? No. This is his entire generation, lots of his friends, lots of his enemies. He is the synthesizer. Right, he brings it all together and tells a narrative. Speech. And he's brilliant at it. So this is where the literature meets the science, in other words, he's a writer. Right. He, he's much more of a communicator than of science and evolution than he is, a, a, you know, a lab scientist of it by far. And as we all know, you know, being a really good scientist requires precision, incremental changes. He couldn't do that. He wanted to think about the planet, the universe, hundreds of millions of years, this discipline, that discipline, put it all together, what do we get? And what we get are these brilliant synthesising books. He developed an idea, something that he called evolutionary humanism. What did that mean? Right, so humanism is really a 20th century vocabulary for his grandfather's agnosticism. So humanism at that point meant disbelief in God. It's the trustee of evolution idea that humans, we're connected to nature, but we have a special place in nature. He he had this idea that we are in a period of the long, long history of life on earth where humans now understand the very process of change, that is to say evolution. So we have a special responsibility. A duty, in other words, he says. Duty, responsibility, we're the species who can understand it. Therefore, we are the protector. We are the only ones who understand it. Our clever gorilla friends, you know, are close to us. They can't understand it. Nor can the beautiful birds, which are actually Julian Huxley's um, own biological love, so to say. They can't understand it. Only humans can understand it. So we have a responsibility moving forward. So our predecessors, our genetic predecessors as primates, humans as primates, they were unable to have written language, they didn't have, they don't fly planes, they're not going to the moon, they're not doing any of those things and evolution over time has produced a creature which is Homo sapiens who are able to do all these extraordinary things. Did he have a sense that somehow the evolutionary process was creating more advanced and more advanced creatures and there was something inherently improving Improving. about the world? Yes, he did think that. And it's a very, very abiological thing to think. But Julian Huxley always did. 
He always talked about the uniqueness of man, he would say, that there is something special. He would always say, like his grandfather, it's not God-given. It is a happenstance of evolution. But once a threshold had been passed way, way, way back, in fact, the great difference is that culture and knowledge can be remembered and can be passed from one generation. So there's this accumulation of knowledge. And so this is his argument for a cultural evolution that is kind of seamless with natural evolution in humankind. Right, so the universe was naturally improving in that sense. He would say so, and certainly humans were naturally improving. And were there spiritual consequences for that to his mind? That's a really hard question. He he would say no, but towards the end of his life, what I did find in this study of Julian Huxley is this he's seeking out all the people who did think so. So weird and wonderful, you know, fringe Catholic theologians who are thinking odd things about the supernatural and who are quite interested in rethinking afterlives. And this is a generation where quite a few card-carrying scientists actually really are quite interested in being open to a possibility of, let me put it this way, which is their way of putting it, a plane of existence that we can't quite see or we might have little windows into but we can't properly see or understand but actually that might be another layer of evolution that of which we're yet unaware. So still in the, in the 40s though, he's still thinks there's this some kind of unconscious, if you like, beneficent principle at work. But it also puts humans really actively at the centre of it because we can do something about it Ah. because we're the clever species. So this is the optimism. So we're the clever species. We understand the process. We can improve not just what happens. We can improve the process itself, hence eugenics. Okay, yes. So this, if you come to that conclusion that there's some kind of unconscious improving mechanism in the universe that's making humans better and more powerful and more capable, that led him towards a concept that he called transhumanism, the idea that humans are now, at this stage in our development, ready to start driving the car of human developments, take over from the unconscious forces of nature and start driving the car itself. That's a very profound idea. He was the founder of this idea of transhumanism, that we can engineer ourselves to make ourselves better and more capable. That's right. And so he comes up with the word transhumanism. So it's definitely in the air. It's definitely in his generation. He comes up with the word. It's beyond, obviously beyond human. And, and he's he, doing this in the 40s and 50s or something like that. Definitely yeah. in the 50s. So transhumanism is a very profound thing. But I think it's also important to realise that, you know, for transhumanists of his generation, they're also talking about things that we think are quite ordinary, like, oh, let's imagine the next two generations living a lot longer than us. Using cyborg technology like pacemakers to increase our longevity, that sort of thing. And also just ordinary Mm. things like better nutrition. So there is also a level of it which is not high tech, which is actually better health. For someone like Julian Huxley, that's also part of a realisation that, in fact, health had got better, people were living longer, He's mucking around with organisms like salamanders in his in his young biology days and he's trying to make them go from being water-dwelling to being air-dwelling. He's trying to make that really rapid. And so this, this is a world where biologists themselves are wondering about, even just in your ordinary species, how can we, how can we speed things up? How can we change it? Give someone an injection so they grow gills, that kind of thing. (laughs) This is H.G. Wells again, isn't it? It's like the island of Dr Moreau. That's right. It's exactly that 1920s, 30s period where they're all wondering about the possibilities of science. And so science and science fiction are two sides (laughs) of the same coin in this era. Like I said, in order to get to this transformed human, he thought the way to do that, this is before the age of gene splicing and whatever and getting under the hood and all that, he thought the most obvious way to do that would be through eugenics. Now... How popular was this idea amongst intellectuals in this era before before World War II, before the Nazis, before Hitler? The scientific version of it, there were some opponents, there were some people who were interested in it because it was plain application to humans of genetics. Okay, and he and a group of scientists, they formed uh, a sort of a eugenics society and wrote up a manifesto. What were they actually proposing to do? How was their version of eugenics supposed to work? 
It's the hard thing to understand now uh, in our current understanding of eugenics that the people who were most vocal about it were not the far right or emerging fascists, which there were obviously in the 20s and 30s, but it's the progressives, the left, the communists, even the people who saw inequality and wanted to do something about it. They're the people who are most likely to be eugenicists in this era. And what are they wanting to do, though? Are they, want to, are they talking about the sterilisation of people who aren't fit for 20th, 20th century life? Uh, to some extent they were, but they would put a bit of a gloss on that, which was we won't force or can't and shouldn't because they're all... They're all from liberal to communist, that direction. And so the idea of forcing in the British conversation, not in the American conversation, but in the British conversation, that idea of making people to do things or coercing is not part of their liberal politics. It doesn't take much scratching of the surface to see that there's another another possible agenda under there and a bit of a drive but there there is a real it's a good thing actually that in the in the british liberal tradition there's quite an opposition to make to making anybody do anything and that also stands in good stead in this particular instance in the states in in the united states there's sterilization uh, legislation that enforces in Britain, this is a far more difficult uh, argument to make. And this brings us to the sticking point with Julian and his family. I think many people outside the family would have seen the Huxley family as prime candidates for having their genes you know, spread and propagated throughout the world as one of these superior families of individuals with good genes and the like. But they were subject, a family that was prone to inherited mental illness, these terrible paralysing bouts of depression that Thomas suffered, that Julian suffered, that his brother suffered from to the point where his, his brother suicided at, at a young age, would that have excluded them from the kind of eugenics program that Julian had in mind? And was he aware of that? He was very much aware of that. And so there is a difficulty and if not an irony and a poignancy at the heart of this because actually... Mental health and ill health was probably eugenics' core business for this generation. Oh, right, more than physical disability. They wanted... Physical mental- ability to some extent. The continuum between physical and mental disability is core business. And it is, it is understood by now that there is inheritance of mental ill health. There's also weird ideas about other things being inherited, so the idea of alcoholism being inherited or this strange word of the era, feeble-mindedness. But, yeah, Julian believed it was inherited. Julian That's the did, point, isn't it? absolutely, and he saw that in his own family and he was absolutely upfront, not just to his in private correspondence to his family but, in fact, to the world in what he wrote. Um, from the 1920s onwards, as a young adult, he would write about his state of depression. He would write about it being inherited through his family. It's the most honest declarations um, of a scientist that one could possibly read of an in- of a tortured interior. This is why scientists should never be politicians, I think. <laughs> what did he make of the Nazis' eugenics program? Terrible, terrible. Everything that we would make of the Nazi program. You know, this is someone who's on the left who is at the very least a very clear and clever liberal. So everything that is going on with fascism is something that Julian Huxley, weirdly later the president of the Eugenic Society, from 1930, mid-1930s onwards, he's one of the most vocal opponents of Nazi ideas about race. And so he writes books that are in opposition saying what nonsense it is. He's making films about what nonsense nonsense it is. He's deeply, deeply opposed to the use of ironically very similar ideas by the Nazis. He's one of the most vocal opponents. I mean, it seems the thing he really hated about the Nazis was they used pseudoscience to back up their ideas of eugenics, you know, racial differences, uh, phrenology, you know, whatever it was that they used to identify the Aryan master race. In writing about this, of course, you have to inhabit the way they think and felt at the time. But looking back with the benefit of hindsight in 20, from the 21st century, how does it look to you now? It looks a weird combination of terrible and terrifying, but that other thing that's unexpected and sometimes hard to explain is that things that are now every day for us 
were the matters of card-carrying eugenicist dreams. So things that happen as we're speaking, things like in vitro fertilisation, things like sex selection, which we know is happening as we're speaking, things like every IVF clinic on, on, in this country and, in fact, in the world are making all kinds of selections about where the ovum and the sperm comes from. Um, things like the early-term diagnosis and then the abortion that happens, rightly or wrongly, all the time. These are matters. The more complicated answer is so many things that we want, like, certainly at the very least do all the time routinely were the things that a eugenicist in 1920 or even 1940 or even 1950 would have absolutely applauded. And so that's the strange history of eugenics before we all get too superior about the world we live in now. As we know, Julian's brother, Aldous Huxley, went down a very different path. Julian was all about, yes, hooray for the planned future, the planned society. Using information to plan for the future was a, was a, it was a big thing and it was going to bring a, a kind of a, not a utopia, but a much better society about. Aldous felt very differently about that planned future, didn't he? Aldous did, and he lived in another, literally in another world that was to say California. <laughs> and so, you know, the two of them are these, Julian's the oldest, oldest is the youngest, and they grow up in this pastoral Surrey landscape of birds. They live, they live with their, their, at their mother's school with these borders and, you know, it's this classic pastoral learned landscape. And Aldous goes the literature line and Julian goes the, the science line. But Aldous gets more and more adventurous, really. So there's something a bit more conventional about Julian than Aldous Huxley. And Aldous, you know, becomes very famous after Brave New World in the 30s. But he wants to live in France. He wants to live everywhere except England. He wants to live in France. Then he wants to live in California. And that's where he spends most of his most of his life. But the two brothers, it's a very, you know, it's a very close and poignant and... Um, intimate relationship actually between these extraordinary brothers and the wider Huxley family both then and now would always talk about being intimidated by six foot four oldest not because of his height but because he was quiet and he wouldn't say and he would just listen and he'd listen a little bit too long and everybody would know that that brilliant brain was cogitating and thinking over what you were saying, but he wouldn't respond. And so again and again, members of the family would both write and have said to me, you know, that there was something always intimidating about Uncle Aldous because he was so he was the listener, he was so quiet, and his big brother Julian was the talker of the two of them. Over time, you say the story of this dynasty... It begins with Thomas leading a process of what's called disenchantment and it ends up with the subsequent generations of Huxley's, the third and fourth generations, embracing a re-enchantment of the world. Tell me what you think that means. So it is true that one of the most important things about Thomas Henry Huxley is this word agnostics and he's trying to tell the world that we can't understand the cosmos, the planet, humans, nature, jellyfish, gorillas, through the scriptures. Of course we live in a world where there is religion, of course we live in a world where there's debate, but we also know that we live in a world where more people would believe that now than did in his era. So he's one of the key figures saying that the world isn't made of magic, in other words. He's one of the architects of that idea, which in a particular tradition, is a, a German tradition of scholarship, is, is called disenchantment, where, we go, where we've gone from a world of enchanted belief in superstition or, or magic and that the thesis is that that's been replaced by a scientific world where magic is, has no place, superstition has no place and there, are, there is a scientific method that tells us what's what. And that's called disenchantment. And in some ways when I approached this family, I thought, oh, this is going to be the story of disenchantment over the 19th and 20th century. So I wanted to write a book about these two extraordinary centuries. And one of the big stories is secularisation away from a world of religion, supposedly. And I thought, oh, yes, that's what I'll hang this on because here's the guy who invented the word agnostics. But as I move forward in the generations to the 20th century generations, not just Aldous Huxley, whose 
interested in the paranormal. Takes a whole ton of mescaline and can sort of see altered states of reality. A ton of mescaline over and over again. And that extraordinary poignant moment, actually, where he asks his wife to inject him with LSD as he takes his last breath. And she does. And she calls it a sacrament. Wow. So, uh, wow plus. And so it's this extraordinary, well-documented moment and agreement between them. Um, And so, in a way, Aldous Huxley is seeking something else. So Aldous Huxley doesn't believe in God, very clear. He's a humanist. He's a secularist. He's an agnostic. But there is another world. There are other worlds. Right, yeah. How do we know? How can we get to those other worlds? How can we perceive them? And that's the mescaline and the LSD that he's interested in. How can we enter those little windows that might get us to somewhere else that we don't know about. It's not that it's not there. It probably is there. How do we get there? And then Julian doesn't do that but writes about it. He doesn't do it. He writes, you know, the the edgy Californian Huxley is over there doing it, The, the kind of nerdy scientist, you know, Hampstead Heath living Julian Huxley is just writing about it. But he's really interested in other kinds of perception. He's quite interested in paranormal societies. He and H.G. Wells sit down and they have long conversations about ghosts. May it be that there's another plane of existence that we don't know of. It's got nothing to do with God necessarily. So over time, and I used to say over the Huxley's lifetime and moving into the 20th century, far from this being a dynasty of people who become you know, less and less inclined to other planes of existence, the spiritual. Facts are facts. That's, it is what it is, that, that sort of thing. That's yeah. the absolute yeah. opposite to what that generation was. And this is why the conversation that we have records of between Aldous and Julian are the, some of the richest things I've ever read because they're leaving their grandfather behind. They believe in, you know, evolution by natural selection. Absolutely. But where else might that lead us? And so I end up writing about the re-enchantment of this Huxley dynasty. It's a fascinating story and a wonderful book. It's been so lovely speaking with you, Alison. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Beverly Wang, the host of Stop Everything, the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Every week, I sit down with a guest critic and together we sort through all the hot takes flying through the pop culture universe. We help you decide what to watch or skip and whether that long read your bestie dropped in the group chat is really worth your time. Stop everything. It's the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Follow us now on the ABC Listen app.